Welcome to another episode of The Art Salon. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends on social media. To keep up with our latest guests and announcements, be sure to follow us at The Art Salon on Instagram. To support the podcast monetarily for as low as $1 a month, please visit the support section on the Anchor website where you can contribute to the podcast. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone. I'm releasing this episode and I'm very excited about it. Today's guest is Jeroen Bevertz. I will read a short bio of Jeroen for those of you who don't know who he is. Belgian trumpeter Jeroen Bevertz is a paramount musical force with an all-inclusive love for music that knows not how to discriminate. Praised for his outstanding technical capacities and sensitive musicality, his repertoire encompasses every epoch from Baroque music to contemporary music to jazz. With a flourishing solo career of recitals as well as concerts with the world's leading symphony orchestras, Yaron still finds time to devote himself to chamber music. Born in 1975, Yaron's musical talents had already been awarded with prizes from various competitions, such as the Concours Maurice André in 1991, the Concours Européen de Jeunes Trompettistes in 1992, when he began studies in the Karlsruhe with celebrated trumpet virtuoso Reinhold Friedrich. He was also award winner at the Prague Spring International Music Competition in 1997 and won the second grand prize as well as the Prix Feeling, a special prize for the best interpretation at the Maurice André Trumpet Competition. Giron's open-mindedness and resplendent playing have brought him invitations to play at internationally acclaimed music festivals, including Ars Musica in Belgium, Takafu International Music Festival, and the Rheingau Music Festival, as well as frequently at the Schleswig-Holstein Music Festival, where in 2005 he performed the world premiere of Toshio Hosokawa's Voyage 7 for trumpet and ensemble. He has also performed as a soloist with many well-renowned orchestras, including the Jonas's Musicals World Orchestra, Munich Symphony Orchestra, Berlin Symphony Orchestra, NDR Radio Philharmonie Hanover, and the Symphony Orchestre Vlanderen, under conductors such as Alan Gilbert and Jakob Kreisberg. Since winning Principal Tarpin with the NDR Radio Symphony Hamburg in 1999, he has been invited to appear on several occasions as a soloist with the orchestra. Following many years as a member of the Canadian Brass, Yerona plays with the Stockholm Chamber Brass. Over 30 compositions have been written for the ensemble, which performs mostly original compositions or arrangements of both contemporary and more traditional repertoire. Amidst his burgeoning trumpet career, Yerona completed jazz and vocal studies at the Royal Conservatory of Ghent. He has developed several programs for trumpet and piano, where he uniquely combines classical jazz, trumpet, and voice. His first solo CD in the limelight provides a stunning take on the trumpet repertoire of the Romantic period. RCA also released a live CD featuring the post-horn serenade by Mozart under the baton of Gunther Vaud. Since 2008, he has been a professor of trumpet at the Hochschule for Music in Hanover. Jeroen is a Yamaha artist. I wanted to have him on because he represents to me the first generation of great trumpet soloists that are fulfilling the promise of the legacy that Hokan Hardenberger, Marcus Stockhausen, John Wallace, and many others have left behind, where they have left this tremendous repertoire where there was a big question mark about whether anyone would pick it up in a professional setting. So even though this repertoire was being studied by young people, which was evident in places like Chosen Vale, where the sequenza has become the new hiding concerto, 
it was not clear that in a professional setting, a lot of these pieces would be picked up once Hokan retires, which hopefully is many years from now. Yaron proves to be the first of the generation that is proving that that's not the case. Not only does he have a flourishing trumpet solo career, but he has independently picked up a lot of the repertoire, particularly from Ashkag Ruver and other composers like him. He has also appeared on stage with Hokan in Double Concerti, and he really fulfills and gives a lot of hope for the future of the trumpet. So with that, I leave you with him. I hope you find this conversation interesting, and I hope you have a happy Thanksgiving. See you all again soon. Um, I think I first heard of you when I was in Malmo one winter, and I saw uh, the announcement of the symphony uh, saying that you were going to play with Hokan. Uh, that double concerto, and so I asked him about it, and he told me about you and what you had been doing. And I found that very interesting because to me it represented the first generation after Hokan that had actually fulfilled that promise of the work he had started and Tom Stevens had started. Of There's this repertoire now and somebody's going to pick it up. And we had always been waiting for who was going to pick it up. And there were a lot of students picking it up and a lot of young people. But then once they reached professional prominence, they just went back to playing Hummel. And here you came and, you know, you were doing HK Gruber and learning it away from Hokan and then coming to see Hokan and, you know, all that stuff. Uh, and I just thought, well, that's really cool. And then you ended up at Chelsea and I was like, oh, OK. And then I heard that it was a huge hit that you were there. Um, and then I've been following you. It was fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've been following what you've been doing and um, through the pandemic as well, some of the stuff you've been posting. And I just think it's fantastic because there's so much noise right now uh, in the airwaves. And you seem to be kind of a reasonable voice to be out there. So um, see about that in the, in the next hour, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about all of that. <laughs> We'll, we'll put that to the test. But, you know, why don't you um, tell me what you've been thinking during this time or, or what you've been, you know, we know what you've been doing, but what have you, what has been your motivation through the pandemic and all that? Well, I don't know how you would know what I've been doing. You'd only know what I've been posting. <laughs> well, that that's what I mean. I guess that's uh, what I, mean. I only had a little period of where I was. I decided to be really active. That was just to keep me going and to, to find my, my setup for this period. And I found that actually. I'm extremely motivated to practice and to, especially to help my students nowadays to get through this. This is uh, very important, I find. I find this, I, I think this whole thing, I mean, um, if you have a fixed job in Germany, then it's of course not nice not to be able to play in public and all that. But you know, you 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 get your sal your salary and you have your security and all that. So that's the, the main part of the worries are not there. But I think if you're a student and you see this, all these goals uh, disappear. Uh, the short term and even some of the long term goals. I mean, practically no competitions, uh, definitely almost no uh, orchestral additions. These are the actual goals that every student has 
all the time. So we, we've been setting challenges um, for ourselves and for each other. Um, like, yeah, next week is one of these other weeks with students that I'm going to have to challenge them and myself uh, all the time. But yeah, the, the whole pandemic, I mean, it's been hard not to play uh, real concerts from March till August. I've been lucky from September till December, actually. I did some nice projects every month, or I was fortunate that I sort of um, slalomed around the lockdowns in each country here in Europe. That was just being lucky. Um, and then um, now I'm just yeah looking forward to slowly when things get better again but I think it's gonna take a, another quite quite a while well and okay let's get into the, like you said something very interesting about uh, the challenges that are typical for students and for profession like young professionals have sort of dissipated like those obvious uh, postmarks right but yeah. your career has also been traversing in and out of that kind of uh, path and I'm curious because in America and I'm sure you've talked about this with some of your American colleagues like Dave Bilger or somebody like that but uh, there's much less uh, in the student body there's almost no thought of innovation as far as it's very mm. one-sided and, and they only want to win an orchestra audition Um yeah, I mean, there's been some people that have been thinking or writing differently. Like I think Mark Gold has been a bit talking about stuff in the direction. I, I think very much we have to be very innovative. And uh, you say that in English, innovative yeah. or not? Yeah. Um, in in different ways, especially for the future. But already the whole the whole pandemic uh, made us think differently. I mean, I've I've been programming i've been putting my base now in working with smaller groups and being very active there working with brass groups um, and, and of course you don't get the chance so much now to play big concertos with uh, big orchestras because they just don't happen now um so yeah there are so many ways now um to be innovative i support a lot of chamber music now within the students um uh, compartments. Um, also, I've got, for example, one student who just founded a new ensemble, Sinfonietta style with 13 people making new arrangements of small symphonies, things like that. Yeah, I I, I think we, we have to be very open because uh, we don't know yet what the future is going to bring, especially if, if all the subventioned institutions uh, now what's going to happen in the future um, about them we'll see i mean maybe we're going to have to be open and and very uh, yeah very innovative uh, in the future well german institutions that are an, are at an advantage to america for example or italy um or spain <laughs> but uh there's a real feeling in Germany that the arts are something worth uh, protecting in times of crisis. Is this yeah. where where do you think that comes from? I'm I'm curious. Well, tradition. I mean, if you look at the uh, 
uh, from Bach, Beethoven, I mean, um, Mozart, okay. I mean, let's see Germany, Austria, all this, yeah. Uh, I think uh, one formal uh, US president used to call it old Europe. um uh, well in in let's say old europe there is just a super long tradition and germany is the absolute center of that culture music wise um maybe not even music only music even philosophy uh things like that i mean germany has been uh, very very uh, has done very well in keeping culture alive and i mean there were many video posts at the beginning of the pandemic of uh, Germany uh, supporting the art and artists and then the other countries uh, were complaining look what all, what's all possible in Germany and all that but it's not black and white like that because in, in Germany a lot of states I mean all the different states had their own little rules for example, these uh, 5,000 euros you were supposed to get in the beginning, um, you could apply for that. But then, apparent, then after a while, it was clear that this is only this can only be used for expenses. And I don't know, but as a trumpet player, I don't have have so much expenses. <laughs> I mean, you don't really have a an office you meet or you know. So, uh, and some some people really had to fight a lot and went down to to apply for what we call here Hartsphere, uh, that you just get your rent paid and a super small income of uh, 500 uh, euros a month. So um, it's not been all uh, roses and sunshine in Germany at all, uh, all the time. And also, yeah, we had a lot of fighting going on. Um, that we can keep culture alive and keep the artists um, supported. But still, social security system here is so much better than in, yeah, maybe not all, but in most other countries. So even that complaining would be compared to the US and other countries on a very, very high level. Yeah, the reason I ask, I mean, I have a feeling so the news keeps getting worse, I think, from the institutions in America that were supposed to be the benchmark um, of classical arts. So you have the Metropolitan Opera and the New York Phil. Um, the Met particularly has just been really horrible. Now they're, you know, they're hiring out musicians that aren't part of the Metropolitan Opera for their uh, stuff. It's just horrible. But it, through all of this, and because I'm not American, what I see that's different from somewhere like Germany, beyond how much aid our artists are getting now, which is already huge, um, it's pretty obvious to me that once things go back to a semblance of normal, Germany's art is going to resume as normal because, like you said, it's such a historically cultural uh, enterprise. But I, I have a really hard time imagining a public funded system in America because I'm not 100% sure that classical music is of the highest um, priority importance or priority to the general public. Um, so it's I don't know if you... Either. It's also not uh, in Germany the case. It's absolutely not of a higher... I mean, if you compare that um, to other music branches or, or other cultural events. Um. I don't know whether that's going to be such a big difference, whether culture is stately supported or privately supported. I don't know. 
We'll see about that later on. <laughs> well, but you don't find that uh, the general public of uh, Germany, even if it's not the most important thing in their lives, are at least uh, more informed of the type of event that goes on in a concert house or a museum? Or let's uh, not compare it to America. Let's just say how informed do you feel the general public well, of Germany I, I, I can compare that. We, I mean, I've played in the States mm -hmm. and I've played on chamber mix festivals in the States and they were, they were well um, visited uh, by audience and there was a nice core audience. Um, but if I, if I go and visit or perform on the same size of festival or that have been going for many years here, you'll find instead of 150 people, you'll find 500 people in the hall. Yes. And even in the, the most, uh, the village, which is like 50 kilometers away from, 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 uh, or hundred kilometers away from, uh, a little bit bigger town. So there is a, uh, yeah, there is a, a deep, also, if you, if you go to church, for example, um, if you have a concert in the church, and I've been doing that for a few times. If you have a concert with a quintet or with organ, or whatever, you can you can play a, a piece by Mendelssohn or by some by Beethoven that everybody will be able to sing along. Not everybody, but a big core of the audience will be able to sing that along. But that has to do with a combination of culture and religion and all these things together. So. I wonder how much of the new generation of, of uh, would be still able to to be active uh, participants in that. Uh, but compared to Belgium, for example, um, that's a huge difference. Like the, the 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 art here is a higher standing in society. If you say here you're a trumpet professor at the university. They treat you as a professor if you would be an economics professor or math or whatever. If you say that in Belgium, they look at you like, yeah, but what do you do for work? You know, <laughs> um, a bit exaggerated maybe, but but it is, it is, uh, you don't have the, it's not the same thing. It is not the same thing. Yeah, we have a similar situation in in. It's a, I, I, I studied in Canada. It's a little bit different in Canada, but not much. Uh, but America for sure has that. Uh, there's a discrepancy between uh, art and people's perception of, you know, where that should stand in the peg of society as far as importance. It's not so clear to me that in America, arts are a priority. Entertainment is. And they get yes. lumped together. Um, well, this might be an interesting thing. Do, what do you think the relationship between entertainment and arts are, or should be? <laughs> I don't think there's a should be. I, I do think there's a freedom of every person uh, to decide whatever he or she wants to like or not. But I do think there's a also as a trumpet player that there's a. I feel there is a duty um, towards art. For example, in my case, to pick up some of the repertoire that Hawken has been working for, I see that as a kind of duty to keep that alive and to give that a possibility to blossom and to stay alive. Because once Hawken stops doing it, then these pieces are dead. 
they don't exist and maybe 100 years later somebody else come but maybe not so i mean i do think also when i perform a recital i really don't mind to play um some variations and some some um and arrangements and stuff like that but yeah i see that as a duty to perform original original repertoire to keep that alive um but yeah i mean I played Canadian brass for three years and had the biggest of fun. And after that, I did Stockholm Chamber brass, which is the absolute opposite. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I used to be much more straight in that. I used to be uh, thinking, oh, what is this? Only only arrangements and all that. Don't want to do this. Um, and now I think everybody, I mean, there, there's people that play mostly arrangements and they do that in a fantastic way. So they should keep on doing that. But that's more towards the direction of entertainment for me, because then it's more about what are you able to do on your instrument um, and not about letting the composition speak. If I take a violent piece and I want to be able to practice that and want to be able to do that on my trumpet, then it's about um, virtuosity uh mostly but then again you can also say no there's also beautiful slow pieces which you can play and then you play them their instrument and so i mean everybody i think everybody is entitled to choose that for his own for her own and you choose i mean if i go give a course in the states i chose to do the one in chosen veil because i know that's where this music has a has a place and a heart so everybody decides for him or herself what entertainment is and what art is, I think. I don't know. Well, I've been thinking about this a lot this month, the differences between the two. And I, I think uh, it can't be denied that art has to be, or it doesn't have to, but usually is entertaining, you know? Uh, but there's something deeper. What does entertaining mean? Well, what I mean is it, it holds your attention, right? Exactly. So yes. that can be a very, it can be John Cage, uh, four minutes, 33 silence. I mean, that's also entertainment then. I mean, well, but I think it's different in the, in the sense that there's a very, um, how do you say this? There's a very human, um, preoccupation to what ends up being high art that, the it's it demands a little bit it has less of a need to be loved all the time that yeah. it yes. demands something of the of the person engaging with it so for example crime and punishment the dostoevsky novel is really hard to to read at the beginning you know cuz all the action happens in the first 100 pages and then you still have 400 pages <laughs> there's no action but at the end when you're done with it it's such a rewarding human experience that you understand the value of this brick. Um, and I think that that's kind of the difference. There's some art, like true art demands something from, it demands part, part of the investment from the part of the listener and not just the performer. Um, and entertainment doesn't always do that because its goal is to minimize the participants kind of in active engagement it's to lull our our humanity a little bit 
in order to be pleased by it. Yeah, but then then again, there are no uh, no borders, right? Because if you um, if you, you can listen to some slow handle movements where you just or ramo, you just sit down and cry away or or dream away. And there's no, nothing of my intellectual mind has to do any effort for that. So that's pure entertainment in the most heavenly form. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, the line is very hard to find, and that's why we suffer a little bit from it here in North America, I think. Um, well, you because... used to have this in Germany. You have to this expression "e musik" and "u musik." Explain that. Yeah, well, also serious music and uh, Unterhaltungs, also uh, entertaining music. This is the same. This is just a nice expression: "e musik" well, and "u musik." And in that distinction, I, I mean, in that distinction, which is so funny is there any judgment passed on on you having to belong to like you you getting pleasure from either of them or is it just an understanding that both things need to coexist in order to form a general culture no i don't think so i don't think so i'm and i'm curious to see i i do think i've been thinking a, a bit about um for example i i i think I learned a lot from my time with Canadian Bros in terms of how to get the attention of the audience. But now I would never ever, pro of course, or since I, I don't play with them anymore, I would never ever program a program like that because I wouldn't feel challenged and I wouldn't feel obliged to my art. But I still think they have a, uh, they have a fantastic reason of being. Um, but I do think what they did in an amazing way they had some kind of s small rules. First piece after the break, get the attention. So, what, for example, I, when I make a recital program, I'd I'd love to have a first piece after the break to get the attention, and then you can do do whatever you want. You know, you you cannot just. I mean, of course, you can have a concert where you just play modern music, but I don't think you promote that art to the big audience in that way because in that audience only modern music freaks will come <laughs> yeah um and if you have only pff, arrangements and light music then oh, i don't know Ugh, boring but i mean since um after darkness the light is brighter i don't think in, i think in any concert performance any concert way you you can you can easily perform some really tough hard pieces if you then after that um um for example i've got a program now <laughs> between life and death so i'll play the hindemith sonata and then there's a d major concerto then there is la mort de l'aigle watkins the death of the eagle then there's again some d major and then there's mysteries of the macabre and again, some dimension. You know, so you have the the light and the darkness combined, and and there is nobody sitting there saying, you know, because <laughs> if they don't like that piece, which I'll be playing um, for ten minutes completely alone, smashing my face. Maybe they hate it, but then they have the D major after that, going like, "Thank you, my lord," and that D major is gonna shine so much brighter um for the audience if if they didn't like the piece 
what you're talking about is something that I I've always thought there's an al- analog to in art galleries that I really love. I like when museums bring in private collections for a month, you know, that somebody lends a private collection because it puts it, you know, when you walk into a normal museum like the Picasso Museum, it's all Picasso and it's wonderful and you see all the eras and that's fantastic. But when you see a private collection, it gives you something very interesting, which is seeing the mind of a curator because you have Monet in in context next to Brock. And then you're like, oh, I never thought of these two things next to each other, playing off each other. And then next to that, you might have a Jackson Pollock. And it's like, well, who had this in their house and why together? And I feel like the the creation of a concert is a little bit like that. It's a, the curatorial part of it is such an important part that we need to be teaching to people that are having recitals. Exactly. This is a very interesting point, I think, as an educator also. This this is an f- extremely interesting point as an educator. What we need to do is how to program. Even There are no rules, of course, but what could be interesting? Um, and I think then is also um, you, can, you can sell it better. So for a student to have a nice program with connections and all that, you can sell it better. You, you, you Yeah. That's a very interesting and very important part of education, I find, nowadays. But with these paintings, I mean, if you have a, a personal collection there, that is a collection made over, can be a whole lifetime, right? So it's, it's very hard to, do they have to be connected? They're only connected by their own, because they're owned by the same person or by the same. So it's a very... I find the difference between a musical composition and an, and a painting is such a beautiful difference. Also for the composer and for the painting, what two completely the same jobs and then again, completely different outcome have. This is fantastic. It must be so terrible to be a composer because your piece can be raped by some kind of, <laughs> I don't know what, uh, two pieces. Yeah. and. With at least when you have finished your painting, that's it. I mean, of course, things can happen with a painting for the good or the bad, but it's so, so different. Well, every every art, I say this a lot, it seems like, but it, every art I've always thought has like a special, they're all connected in the fact that they're all creation, but every art has a special superpower that other arts don't have. And so like painting, has the benefit of time. You finish the painting and you leave it and then time can pass and it's still the same and people watch it and then they can decide time and time again what it is. Then like literature has the power of infiltrating your mind and creating a world. It's like a hallucinogenic. And then I thought music has always been so powerful because it's it's such it's one of the most immediate art forms. Now, its weakness is that it can't exist without being played but it it's so quick in its connection from performer to audience member probably more than any other art that i can think of and mm-hmm. that's i mean let's talk a little bit about like how you how do you teach uh, you, you're saying it's so important to teach people to produce their concerts and curate and i agree with you that it's not necessarily that you there's wrong or right answers but putting a piece next to another piece changes the way we feel it now we've lost that a little bit with the orchestras because they always play the same repertoire so 
the distinctions are not so clear anymore, especially, you know, it, uh, the stark contrast between Rachmaninoff and Beethoven is no longer so stark. So um, yeah. how do you teach something like that? Or what do, what do you promote in your students or in yourself? How do you go about uh, programming a, a concert, for example? Well, first of all, you can promote the students, of course, to read about the composer. Mm-hmm. Um, if they... There's so many things you can, you can you can promote them to make contrasts to play, um, for example, the Hansa Sonatina, which is Toccata and Canzona, you know, Signali, uh, together with, um, for example, uh, old Fran- uh, old Italian music with uh, chamber music, uh, Canzonas Gabrieli. Um, around it in their exam for example you you can you can play old new uh like you do here you can connect uh, a new composer from which you know he's a big fan of brahms or he's a he's into intellectual german romantic music put them together i mean of course the old like like people put Debussy or Ravel and Gershwin together you know the connections the obvious connections that people know you can find um so many incredible connections um all the time I mean I'm not gonna <laughs> I already said some of them but I I, I just ask uh, students what what they think would be um well connected to that and why but of course for a student a recital is is also something physically demanded so they don't have a complete freedom right um but they they can have their imagination going and then if you have um in in in, in germany in hanover in school when they do their exam they have the freedom to play uh, so they play 60 or 90 minutes and they play solo repertoire, trumpet alone, trumpet piano, trumpet organ, trumpet strings and chamber music repertoire. So if you have it that wide, you have a very nice uh, range of what you can offer. Um, and there you can find nice uh, red wires between the program uh, all kinds of, of, of things or I mean, you can you can you, you go years by you can you go just promote the 50s in your exam and uh, play on whatever I mean yeah there's so many ways to to do that but this you have to do that with students that are able to think or are willing to think beyond their their square when they when they come in that's a real challenge there. the questions sorry that's a real challenge there though in itself sometimes uh yeah, finding, I mean, finding students that are actually interested in the broader arts or even music yeah i guess i mean yeah I'm, I'm, i've never been the teacher that you have a student coming in and you just do haydn hindemith honegger and orchestral excerpts well i think that that's uh you know i owe it a tremendous debt of gratitude for this to ed carroll because when i was going to do my first recital he said to me when I was a student for undergrads, he said, um, you know, you don't get to do these that much in your professional world, so you probably shouldn't waste this opportunity. And I, I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, you know, you're at a university where you have string quartets that will play for, play for free, organists that will play for free, brass musicians that will play for free. So 
maybe don't waste this opportunity to play, you know, within a company that you don't even know, you know, and I took that to heart and I've had a lot of recitals since, but I think it's important to take ownership of your work early on. And that's difficult for a student to understand. Yeah. There's so many things that should be redone. And like, for example, it compelled compulsory uh, should be at the school now how to sell yourselves how to sell your music how to sell your program um these kind of things have become so 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 important because you have some great musicians but they have no idea about how to get their music out there well you are you're in an interesting position why don't you t tell me how that so i i've always thought that hokan's generation was the last of the great uh, contracts you know what i mean that they got the record deal and then the record deal led to a lot of uh, exposure and then that exposure led to more record deals and more engagements how have you had to navigate that shift uh, you know from that very obvious career path into managing your own career because you know I, I agree with you that nowadays you have to know a little bit you have to be more active in your role as a administrator I mean, of yourself <laughs> I, t I talked to Hawken about that it was so funny one day said we were in Wales I think he said you know there are hunters and there are farmers I'm a farmer I'm an absolute farmer. I, I, I like security, but I like to grow things and, and, and see how they develop. You know, I, I, I don't have a record deal. I just make records, whatever opportunity there are, opportunities there are, and then see the outcome and see where it takes me, where it goes. You still have some people have record deals but not so much and then most of them like in the serious music business i wouldn't know any serious like i mean anyway record deals everything is bible right i mean you buy them nowadays so there's enough examples of that i i don't i don't know if some something tells me that we're coming away completely from this record stuff you cannot you only lose money with it anyway so <laughs> of course you still need them for promotion and all that but if, if i talk to a promoter first thing they do is uh, put your name in youtube so i don't know how long that's still gonna uh, it's a thing I've, i have in my mind but I'm, I'm i'm not convinced about that record thing anymore and anyway, all this, all this recording, you know, you make these thousand cuts and then you get something really special. I don't know. It's far away from the truth. And then you can say, yeah, well, we do that. And that, that would be the ultimate superb version, but, you know, I don't know. So how do you, how do you see the market now? Like you're talking about YouTube and that's real, but how else have you navigated this space in order to, like you said, be well, farming I, like your I said, career? <laughs> I'm a farmer and I look, I look, <laughs> one thing is I look what I want to do. The other thing is I look at the needs as the best example. Now with the beginning of the pandemic, I saw that in big orchestras, the people that don't have any work now are the trombone players, the bass tuba, most of the horns and trumpets only two maximum because everybody plays just Haydn and Beethoven. Um, so that was 
where I start to farm and see, okay, this is what is needed. I'm going to work with brass sections now as much as possible. And then that opens a world of new repertoire. I mean, of course, we know that Greek and Britain and a bunch of famous composers wrote original pieces for brass, but a lot of program directors never heard of them. I mean, <laughs> I, to be honest, I think in this whole pandemic, it's a very, it's a very easy way to see from which orchestras you have great people leading them in terms of programming and, and being inventive and doing the coolest of, of things. And other orchestras, partly major orchestras, just have no clue what to do. And there, this, I mean, in terms of repertoire, I've discovered pieces, oh my God. Um, so many amazing pieces that are new on my list now, which I want to do all the time. Um, so this is me farming and seeing where the opportunity goes. So that's where I go. Also, in terms of students needing much more attention now. So I, I do focus on that. And for me, myself, in terms of motivation, I just need one big goal and then I'm I'm on for several months. So <laughs> I'm okay with that. I can practice one piece for eight months and that makes that keeps me going. That's fine for me. Yeah. I So that is interesting what you brought up about orchestras not knowing what to do with themselves in many cases. I... Uh, in America, we have two different things happening. You have the orchestras that are kind of financially um, okay because they amassed so much wealth in the last couple of years. So you have like the LA Philharmonic, Boston Symphony, to some degree, the New York Phil. They're all sitting and it's, it's going to be okay because things are going to come back and it's big cities. So it's going to be fine. But the ones that really uh, I wonder about, there's minor cities that have pretty good orchestras but that it's not so clear that they're going to make it right now. And I see their survival mechanism is to do more, to be safer instead of saying, well, if we're going to go bankrupt, we might as well just try as many things and see what, what sticks. Uh, and well, It doesn't have to be black or white. I think why not combine the safe spot of the, the beautiful Haydn or Beethoven symphony with uh, a Tomasi or uh, Rautavara or whatever before that. I mean, it's a possibility. Yeah, and I think it would be like a really interesting path forward because the orchestras have already been uh, stuck a little bit in the past with all this. Oh, imagine stuff. a concert where the brass section plays not just Duca, but one of the. I mean, there's Bernstein, there's Tomasi, there's Wolfgang Riem, there is. Haka Gruber. I mean, you can name a million of amazing brass pieces. And then woodwinds, oh my God, they have everything. They have Mozart, Strauss, and then you go to Stravinsky. All, I mean, so Hindemith, Sinfonietta settings, and then a beautiful string piece. That would be my ideal uh, Corona concert, would be a, a fantastic brass, new turnage set two or something like that, you know? He, he he went into football stadiums uh, tracking the tunes what they were singing, made a composition out of that. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And then after that, uh, a piece for woodwinds and after, after that, a piece for strings. I mean, everybody would be playing and everybody would be, 
have a reason of existing and and anyway all composers complain about that they're only demanded to write new compositions but their existing compositions are rarely played because from the moment your composition is 20 30 years old it's not new music anymore and there is so much amazing gold uh, laying around there which is not used as if the audience would not be ready for it. But the only people who can make the audience ready for it is us musicians and the program directors who shall and should program it. But that, that, this is what I meant before. Why be afraid of programming a modern piece before the beautiful Beethoven 5, which you can still play on most, sta most stages? Um, and audience would still be happy. And there would be... And, I mean, the reason of existence would still be there, of cultural existence. I mean, this is where I find figures like you and, of course, Hokan very... I gravitate towards people like you because I... The new music community, and I don't know what your experience has been, but at least in Los Angeles and probably New York, is from my experience, the new music community becomes so self-serving in the same way that the classical community becomes so self-serving that then, I mean, here, for example, if you go to a new music concert and there's a piece from 2005, there will be a large segment of the musicians that will be just so displeased that, oh, that's not new music. And I'm like, when, when was the last time you heard this thing live? Oh, it's only been done once. It's like, so it's new music because we've never heard it. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I love that you're saying that. I, I do think, I mean, it, that's Hokan is not at all in the new music no. uh, section. I mean, he's in the absolute abonnement series, top of the range section, playing with the biggest orchestras, still new music repertoire. And these, a guy like Hokan or these composers and these soloists, and the conductors who do them, they are the people who promote real new music for the big audience. Of course, we need Ensemble Modern and Contemporain and all that to have these pieces written and existing, but they are not the groups that make that come going out for the for the big audience. That's just a fact, I think. Yeah, and you do need, like you said, you need those people because repertoire needs to be created. And also, I think uh, composers need spaces where they can experiment and be accepted as they grow into the mainstream. But... Yeah, but some composers have never been accepted there. Like Gruber, for example, or, or other, I mean, <laughs> that may be too hard to say never accepted, but there are some big time composers who have never been accepted with. Uh... So also no rule there. Well, and I, I think that that's one of the ironies, at least maybe uh, you might have something to say, but here, uh, it's very interesting when I go to new music concerts a lot. The pieces that are like celebrated to me actually sound very old because it's the same language from the 1960s. Like that's still what's considered new. I mean, like uh, people are using the philosophies of John Cage to compose in the year 2020. I mean, that that was in the 60s. So it's like not new. And yet they criticize somebody, like you said, like Gruber, whose language is actually completely of this era because it it intermingles so many facets of what is culturally relevant right now. And yet the new music crowd will shun that because they think that that's not avant-garde. And it reminds me, there's a 
There, there's a man that a journalist called Gore Vidal in America that used to say everything in life changes except the avant-garde theater. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. But how do you, how do we co? How do you, how would you, how do people like you end up finding that place to coexist? Um, you know what I mean? Well, I think it's by looking connection. For example, uh, this, this, this Brahms etudes, whether they are written for the trumpet or not, I found them super interesting and some of them are beautiful pearls. So I asked Toshio Hosokawa, for example, can you write a reflection on that? And he did. So I can play a recital um, where I start with this beautiful Brahms melody. It goes straight into this new piece by Toshio Hosokawa, which ends on a, a sounding C, which can then go into an improvisation leading to my funny Valentine, going into uh, George Enesco's um, um, Legende. So then you have uh, four completely different styles, um, making them existing together. So you're you're showing the audience a absolutely very kurzweilig. How do you call that? Um, what is the opposite of boring? I mean, interesting, entertaining. <laughs> yeah, this is that's a you know, in in it's very easy in German. You say langweilig, long taking, or uh, kurzweilig, short taking, you know, that's you good. don't have that in English, right? No, but that's what makes Germany such an, like German is such a great language for the arts because you can create the specific word that you need. I love yeah, that. Well, not always, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Some, some expressions are really nice. Yeah. No, anyway, I mean, I think I find that a very nice way to blend in new music if you put it next to something um but then again i mean you will have people saying oh no 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 i'm a purist sorry but i i do think inesco legend has to stand on its own and that's fine for me i mean that, that's fine that's I, I just do it my way i mean it's fine if somebody says no i i, I don't agree to that and I like this ties back a little bit to a comment you made about um in Germany the people go to concerts and they'll they'll recognize a certain amount of music Mendelssohn Beethoven because mm -hmm. of the general culture in church etc um I wonder now if the type of composers that find that melding and the type of performers that find that uh conjunction between the new and the old are in tune with a creation process that existed basically up until the end of the war, which is that we restudy things to bring new things about. So like we restudy cultural memes. So for example, uh, mythology gets restudied and restudied and restudied so that we have like 18 versions of Orfeo by different composers and they're all significantly different. Uh, I think it's so interesting what you're talking about taking a Brahms etude and taking it to a composer and saying, you, you restudy this because that's actually something that was common practice until oh, like yeah, 1950. And I think came back a lot in the, in the, in the last years uh, to do that kind of thing. What has come of it? Tell me like what you've learned from it or. Well, I think, you know, I, the main rule for me is in programming is not to why 
as is, is why not that's my main rule why not why i mean it's also a feeling right if you feel that you're in a, in a c minor mode in a modern music comfort composition or and when you play berio sequenza pawarudi okay i know it's not a jazz tune but yeah i think um what a beautiful morning uh, sang by Ray Charles would be the best follow-up piece on Berio Sequenza, for example. I would love to have a to go to a concert to, like a jukebox, you know, to have that. Okay, ju jukebox. You press the number, so you decide the order. Would be also a nice opportunity to say, like, okay, you can choose the order, guys. Um, but yeah, I, th I think there's there's so much mutual in the feeling of a piece. Uh, for example, I have this program where I put dances from Rameau together with songs from Jacques Brel, which I mean, Rameau has, has a, a, the old bagpipe. It's, I mean, but it's still, it's, um, it sounds like an accordion. It's, um, so Rameau has a movement in, in all his tragédies lyrique. Uh, there is movements called musette. And the musette, um, you know, the, the French chanson is full of musette. So it's so easy to go from this mood to the other mood. So and and, and it's not. I don't think one should ask the question why put these two together. Okay, it's easy to say that's the reason musette. But the main question should be why not? I think because you bring you bring people together. You bring people together that would listen to. Jacques Brel at home, but never to Rameau, and then you bring people together, you know, or like Beethoven, uh, or like Beatles and Berio, which he also used, uh, things like that. It's nice to connect complete different people together. That's what the world could need a little bit more now than to separate uh, groups. I mean, in the old days, I think a Republican and a Democrat could be married together, no? Would be nice at some point. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I, I, also this hits on a point that I think has been lost a little bit, which is that I don't know how it is in Germany, but in Colombia we speak of uh, high culture and low, like highbrow, lowbrow culture. You know, um, but they, there's no value judgment passed there. It's just that uh, cultural enterprises go parallel to each other, so you can have something like flamenco developing in one area of life while beethoven in another but uh or in in beethoven's case you know you have dance music and then you know beethoven parallel to each other and it's not necessarily that they need to meet but the general culture inhabits all of that in its melding together and it's not that culture is only the high culture it's all of yeah. it coming together and like you said, it's not, I don't think that that's such an innovative concept, what you're saying. It's not unlike what Mahler did in his symphonies. He was uh, very influenced by so many things that were not normal in a concert hall. And I don't know where we lost track that that was an acceptable and desired thing to do in a concert hall is to bring different elements of general culture together. Not one or the other, you know? Yeah, yeah. I was actually thinking that there was a period where you could see like new jazz music, new classical music was sort of 
coming closer together, I found. I don't know, it's, it's something to do with Melody. I've, I'm, I'm a great friend of Melody. And <laughs> I remember once giving a, a small lecture and talking about a real sound. <laughs> and all these new music guy looked at me like, what the F are you talking about? You know, a real sound. I meant like the natural sound of the instrument. I like that. I mean, I really like that on the trumpet to play natural sounds. I don't need a composition with split tones or whatever. I do think that a quarter tone can be um, the new half tone. You know, if you look at romantic, romantic music, half tones were the most expressive things. If a quarter tone is used in that way, I think it's amazing. It's amazing. It's really extra. But if it just if it's just about the quarter tone, then I don't see any point in that. If the split tone is done, and this is just examples. If the split tone is used in the moment where you need that that pain and that that sound, that extra, great. But if it's just about it, then I I don't. I'm not so interested in that. Then so many other people can do that, but it's not. I like melody, and I will always like melody. Whether that's a new music melody, which whether that's a uh, even a quarter tone melody, um, twelve tone melody, whatever it is, but I need melody. Yeah. Well, it's a. I think that some of these communities we've become so specialized that we can become, and I think this is what happens with some new music. I mean, I have a lot of friends like what you're talking about, where you. Look, I know a, a friend of mine whose work is all split tones. That's all he does. And I've gone to five con and I stopped going to his concerts because I went to like five concerts and it was different composers in theory, but they were indistinguishable. I mean, every piece was indistinguishable. It was like, okay, I'm done with that piece. Now I'm another piece. And it was just every piece was just five minutes of different split tones. And I realized that you you can fall victim. And we can fall victims in arts education of culture can't be the victim of expertise. Like creating an expert in something doesn't mean that they are a creator of art in that sense. Yeah, um, but they also have a reason. Of, they, they can exist and do it. Absolutely. I mean... They're very important. And it, it brings me to something that I read Stockhausen in an interview saying, which of course it was like very blasé of him to say, but it was very true which somebody was saying that he had left his experimental stages. This was later in his life and has now dedicated himself to what some composers have called very, you know, not so experimental music and blah, blah, blah. And he, he said, <laughs> it's very funny. He said, you know, there's experts and then there's artists. Experts create very interesting things so that artists can come and take the best elements of it to blend them together into something that will actually survive time. And, you know, that's... <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, a little bit blasé. <laughs> but I think that that's important in the work that... Um, I mean, Gruber is a perfect example of what you're talking about. I mean, I, you listen to a concerto like Ariel, and that first time I heard it, I could not even understand what was happening until I saw a video of it. But it didn't matter. Because it was so integrated, the the horn, you know, that the cow horn and the uh, slide out 
and the multiphonics are so integrated into what the music is trying to tell you that it's almost like it couldn't be any other way. It's it's almost like that's always how the trumpet has operated. Hmm. Do you gravitate towards? Is that what you're like looking for when you're working with composers, or you know, if you say melody is important to you, do you tell composers well, that? Um, I have never. Well, actually, no. I am just thinking now uh, with who, which compositions. Mostly, I had a confrontation with one composer. Uh, not a confrontation, but who wanted um, the worst kind of sound for a big period of time. And he didn't want a proper sound. He wanted like more air. No, no, there's too much sound, too much, too much proper notes. And so... so then I started to sing in the instrument and then he liked it. So I, I was happy. He was happy. <laughs> <laughs> I was just singing, taking my mouthpiece apart. I just sang the whole three, four pages. So... <clears throat> I was just singing my melody. I just had to practice a bit more. <laughs> but um, I was happy. He was happy because he he wanted a different sound than what's normal. I don't. Yeah. I don't need that. I don't need different than what's normal or whatever. But most composers, I mean, most composers that I play, I choose them because that music speaks to me. So, I mean, and that's always been music where the melody is present. I mean, Gruber, Hosokawa, all these composers. Um, most of them is where melody comes about. Some, some, I mean, like one of my favorite pieces to play with piano is Ligeti, Mysteries of the Macabre. Not so much melody in that one. But then again, that's, a, that's an amazing composition in, in, its, in, in its form. How it is. So it doesn't always have to be just pure melody, but also another piece which I'm going to play a lot this year, I mean, <laughs> depending on, is the uh, La Mort de l'Aigle Watkins, um, which I think, I mean, also you can say, okay, a bit of a nice line, you know, new music. Uh, can I call them freaks? <laughs> new music guys would call it even cheesy um <laughs> sorry guys um but yeah i i just love it and i i'd I love to for that piece for example i think i took that up in the program um i think it's a masterpiece rarely played rarely played la mort de l'aigle um the death of an eagle the yeah. death of an eagle yeah. that piece is phenomenal and I think people shy away from it because it it's such a killer. Um, yeah, it is. <laughs> in a recital, you know, like it's hard to follow that with another piece. Uh, but you know that uh, what I wanted to include because you, you were saying in the beginning uh, about performing these hard pieces, or, or many people then they're going for it and then they stop. The thing with them is these pieces. It's like a marathon runner, right? You don't run a marathon when you're 18 years old. That's when you run your 5Ks and then you go for 10Ks and you for 15, 20. And most people don't continue to practice with 45 uh, or 40 like they did. Um, you know, I think that's where the biggest difference is because 
yeah if you are in the orchestra then you have to perform especially in the states you don't it's not like in europe if you have a big position here you have two weeks free and two weeks play so um but i think the the biggest difference is the will to suffer that's the biggest difference between being able to do that or not i've never been so talented in strength or something like that from 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 my child, I had a, my first teacher, who just, I wasn't allowed to play above high A and not talking in the, in the high A, right? I'm not just talking like, you know, he was so prudent and so careful. So I wasn't strong at all, not even with 21 at, at all. But persistence, I mean, you say persistence in English, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to be prepared to, to um, suffer. How do you say it? Yeah, it's you. I call it suffer, but yeah, but it's the same for a sportsman, right? I mean, I get up in the morning and do my do my basics. Um, so you have to be prepared to keep on doing that work, um, and then of course you, you have to like the music, right? If you don't like uh, Haka Gruber busking or um, Ariel, and you have to practice that, then <laughs> you're really going through hell. <laughs> I, I play them because I think, for example, you were talking about Ariel before. I think that's one of the most beautiful pieces ever written on the trumpet. I honestly think so. This is not me talking bullshit or whatever. Um, absolutely. I mean, if, if I would be asked, uh, what do you want to play, uh, Aratunian, Haydn, or Ariel? Not one, one side of my... Yeah, you know? Yeah, I would always go for Ariel, of course. That's like one of the best concertos ever written, I think, in general, out of any instrument that I li like. I think what I like That's about that, <laughs> well, you know, like, I think that what, so when, when Hokan set out to do the repertoire and, and Markus Stockhausen, uh, they were, Tom Stevens was convinced that it couldn't be done. Like, he said, yes, this is what has to happen, but it, you can't. Because, like, how do you end up with a, you don't. You can't go back in time, and you can't get Sibelius to write a trumpet concerto. And you can't get uh, Beethoven, and you can't get any of them to write you something because they're dead. So how will this ever come about? And to his surprise, it did. But I think like uh, the Ariel for me is one of those pieces that I will gravitate to not just as a trumpet player, but as oh yeah, yeah. general lover of music. That it's like oh, I would rather listen to this right now than the barber violin concerto or something you know and and that is a real feat there from a from a compositional point of view that that he took the yeah. instrument so seriously to make it so good you know well if you're a composer you work with Hokan, you have to take the instrument seriously <laughs> that's amazing how he works with a new composition this was for, i learned so much from that he takes every bar apart i mean he if you're not prepared as a composer composer to say why <laughs> you like, you know, forget it. That's really amazing. Well, tell me about that process because you did, like I said, the first time I heard about you uh, was when you were doing the double concerto with Hokan. The yeah, so I mean, yeah. it got written, and then we we came together to rehearse with the composer together, and then it's just very clear that it, the way he works is 
to bring out the piece in its best possible way in combination with the sound of the instrument. Um, and that's by taking everything so super serious. And that was a big pleasure. So I, I remember recording a piece for trumpet and strings <laughs> with quite a good orchestra in Europe. And I remember the composer saying, yeah, I don't know why we have to do this, but we have to do it, you know? He was trying to be friends with the string players who were not really loving that modern music kind of thing they were doing there. And that's really the opposite of what we should do with modern music. It is often judged so quick, quickly, right? If you, if you play modern music, it's also such a word. If you play a modern piece with a normal, regular symphony orchestra, it's very often already judged before the first rehearsal by looking at their own part and then definitely already judged after the first rehearsal. Why? Why, for God's sake, is that, is that the case? And the, the, everybody seems to forget that if this would have been done already 100 years ago, this judging of, of the unknown, then there was, it was so many pieces would have not be existing, would not be existing now. Terrible, terrible. Yeah, that's a bit of a shame. But yeah, such is life. It's also not the normal state of affairs. Like we've created a hundred years, well, less than a hundred years, probably 50, 60 years of uh, disruption of the normal state of affairs of uh, particularly mu art music creation, which is that, you know, people think it took a hundred years for the right of spring to be accepted, but really, it really was five. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a big chunk of time. And like you said, even if we look a hundred years ago, we wouldn't have Rachmaninoff if it wasn't for the acceptance of new things within the orchestral cycle. In fact, music directors were hired specifically because of their relationship with composers, not so much because they knew Beethoven so well. And so I, I, I think we've, we've created a false sense of uh, history in music schools too, because we teach everything as if it was a long period of time, you know, in, in most students' mind, from Bach to Mozart, there was a hundred years, you know, in their mind. And from Mozart to Beethoven, another hundred. But really, it's like 50 years for all of that. And then from there to Brahms, it's like 10. And then from there to Wagner, it's the same, you know, like five years, six years. And then from there to Mahler, he was still alive when Mahler was writing. And then from Mahler to Schoenberg, and then we're there. It's actually a very short period of time where so much innovation was happening. And it's so disheartening, like you say. I, I've experienced it myself in even in youth orchestras, which is worse because we shouldn't be so cynical that they put a new piece in front of us and a lot of people are already, before the first note is played, like, oh, like, why do we have to do this? I had this experience with Ives, and Ives is 100 years old. And string players were saying, I don't know why we have to play this music. What are you talking about? This isn't even old. This, is, I mean, this isn't even new. It's very old, you know? Well, I mean, if I go back to... If you look at trumpet teachers, how many, if I just in Germany or Belgium or whatever, how many of them play which repertoire? 
that says enough. I think everything, like I said, everybody in, is entitled to do that and to say that. But that also means that if you never do that, I don't like that. You say that to your students as a teacher, your responsibility is super high and you know that everything you say you influence. Um, I, I just talked a week ago with a colleague of mine, Jonas Bülund, a uh, trombone uh, professor in Hanover. Um, he's a big fan of new music. He was like the heart of, of Stockholm Chamber Ross, he still is. Um, he had a Hungarian student coming in and that guy said, like, I, I hate modern music. I really don't like it. Oh, mm, mm, okay, good. And now we're uh, four years further and he's going to play uh, an exam with five modern trombone pieces. So um, just it doesn't have this is his his own choice right um he doesn't have to do that but if he heard from his teacher all the time that he doesn't like modern music then of course he's not going to like it it's a normal thing it's even beyond the matter of taste i think that there's a sensation that some of these teachers give on their students that it's not serious to play modern music and the <laughs> irony of that is that they discard Luciano Berio in favor of very minor, not serious composers from the past. You know what I mean? Like, like they say, oh, it's not serious to play new music. So here, play some bozza. It's like, yeah. So we're going to discard the Berio and discard the HK group because that's not serious. But here, program a whole concert of bozza. Example, man. <laughs> Eugène. Yeah, well. Yeah, but then, I mean, I don't want to criticize. Uh, I mean, you have amazing teachers um, who never played modern music and that it's absolutely valuable. And I don't want to criticize that. But I do think it's really important as a teacher that uh, you know, you should know how much your words can weigh on the student. And that is that is hard. Well, you mentioned Mark earlier, very when we very first started talking, and yeah. he's a good example of what you're talking about. Mark, I don't know Mark well enough, but I I've never gotten the impression he cares about new music. In fact, he might even be a little hostile to it, and a little hostile to, uh, uh you know, like period instrument music. He he likes what he likes, and that's fine. But what's so awesome about him, he doesn't bring that to the lessons. In fact, he he. His role, which is why I've always found him so interesting, is he questions his students severely just to be sure that they want to do what they want to do. So, yeah, I man, isn't he's got an amazing example of what's his name? Brian McWarther. Oh, yeah, Brian. Yeah. He was a student of Mark, right? No, not really, but they, no. they so Brian, I, I, that's only because of this craziness yeah, that they <laughs> Well, they, he he went to Juilliard and and Mark was at Juilliard, but Brian never studied with Mark, but they became very close because they had similar uh kind of ideas about things. Uh, okay, sorry. I, I I miss Yeah, but there's also in Germany um, for example, if if, if I'm right, uh, Matthias Hoefs He's not at all into modern music, but one of his students uh, is a trumpet player of um, Ensemble Modern in Frankfurt. So that's amazing. That's fantastic. You don't have to do it for yourself, but I just remember on my very old days, I was influenced by 
not supposing to like modern music. They, they didn't hurt, hurt you, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. No, but you're right. That, that, is, that is great. That was great about Reinhold Friedrich, my teacher. The best about that, that, that he, he just, he gave so much love. And within that, he gave you the confidence in yourself to find your own path. And I thought that that's, I'm so grateful and thankful for that from him. Um, yeah, he didn't have one way or, or I mean, his, his own career is the best example. He used to play in a good radio orchestra. Then um, he did some big people like Riem wrote for him, modern concertos. Then he concentrated on period and on Baroque trumpet a lot. I mean, his Brandenburg recording with Abado is legendary. His, uh, and then he went to Lutheran Festival Orchestra. And so this is like the, the most diverse kind of career that you can uh, um, can have. So, and that's exactly what he what he showed uh, his students, or still does. I mean, he's talking in the past. He's very much alive, very much alive. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's that, that. That was an amazing teacher to learn from. Do you feel like in Germany, because you're just one of uh, you and and Reinhold are good examples of this, but there's others that. Do you feel like there's a bigger willingness to? move with different currents and change and because you know I, the reason i'm asking it's very clear here in america that the goal for a lot of people is to get a you know get principal trumpet of the new york philharmonic and then <laughs> die there you know like get it I at think... age 40 and then die there at age 90 and that's like the way to do it and i feel like in germany i see a lot more people going in and out of of these institutions and also taking their teaching a lot more seriously by dedicating their whole uh, career to it or something like, you know, like once you've done a lot of career things, the teaching becomes a main focus. Uh, is that, am I, am I right about that? Or is that just the impression from outside? Well, in, in terms of many trumpet players, they play either long in an orchestra and then they go to become professor or they, they do some kind of all kind of stuff, but <clears throat> yeah, you're right in that. Um, in terms of the students, I do think if you ask 90% of a student, if you ask 100 students, what do you want? Um, they'd all want that principal uh, New York Phil job. Actually, no, there are also some that want that just a job, you know, there's some that are a bit more, um, <laughs> how do you say, uh, um, yeah, they're a bit cooler in that. They're not so <laughs> egomaniacs. <laughs> But um, yeah, I, I don't know. And, and the rarest admit to themselves that they want to be a soloist or they want to do that stuff. <clears throat> but um, I don't know that that goal for, for most students, the same, maybe in Europe, maybe you have a bit more in regular life in uh, pre and hopefully post Corona life you have maybe a bit more the possibility to um, specialize. So if you're really good at Baroque trumpet, you can live from that. You really can. Um, studio work nowadays, not anymore, but you used to be just in like an LA, you used to be able to live from that too. So, but that's maybe a, an opportunity, but I have uh, 
very rarely a student coming in the class and saying, my ultimate goal is to become a teacher. Um, if then they say that after having had a big orchestra job or a big other job. <clears throat> what I, I do hope and what we try to promote a lot is that uh, a lot of students also go um, wider, you know. I think nowadays, it, and anyway, it's so interesting if you get your job in the orchestra and you do chamber music, this kind of things that you, you're set up a bit broader. Uh, this I find interesting for for students. But yeah, I, I, I'm curious to see what that's all going to change with the students, you know. Um, if they're still able to say, this is what I want, you know, being, being having so, so much insecurity at the moment. I'm curious to see what, where that is leading us or, or leading them. Yeah, I'm curious too. I'm curious if, um, so I, I've spent some time in Europe and I've spent some years in Canada and here, and there really is a little bit of a different mentality. Um, in, in Canada, just, you were in Montreal with yeah, I was in Montreal with Ed, with Ed at, at first. Uh, then he left, and I stayed there with Russ Devers, who was the associate principal of the Montreal Symphony. And then I was in Italy with Cassone for a little bit, and then back to Ed in California. And then I've been back and forth with Hokan for a number of years now. But that the difference in mentality that I think I see is that my my European counterparts especially in france and in yeah especially in france they're getting a real musical education at their conservatories that is much broader and then they leave the conservatory maybe not as capable at like for example taking an audition but they're mm -hmm. much better musicians so they're gonna figure it out you know it's like yeah give them a year they'll figure it out and they have in a way at least my you know like luca went and won the job in Ensemble Intercontemporain, and my friend Arthur is in uh, the Philharmonia Orchestra. So I'm I'm kind of curious, like, if you feel the process in Germany is still <laughs> sort of like that, or is it gearing more towards a specialized uh, orchestral track? It really, I I try to leave the student complete freedom in that. <clears throat> I mean. At the end, you have students that come in to just to do a master and they have two years and their goal is to win an audition. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so they'll really, they really want to concentrate on hide and, and excerpts. But then again, I, I mean, I do try to um, support them in going other directions as well. But if that's their will to do, then I'll, I'll, I'll support them as much as I can in that direction. Um, I don't I don't know if there's so much difference at the end. Not sure about that. Um I, I do think I'm not I do think that in Europe there's many more small ensembles, little groups uh, being set up all the time and then some stay, some leave <clears throat> where um people uh, who are diverse have uh, potential to to um, yeah to live their dream um, this might be a little bit more present in 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 Europe than in the states but correct me maybe I'm wrong 
No, you're right. I think in the kind of classical realm, uh, the only exception is I think most of the creative artists in America have gravitated towards improvised uh, musics. So you have Peter Evans and Dan Rosenboom and Nate Woolley and, you know, uh, Steph Richards, who are the equivalent, I think, of what happens in Europe, but it rarely happens in a classical setting. So they're very experimental. They're very... Uh, but it's all from there's a lot of groups created here but they're very rarely geared towards kind of classical traditional settings so that's a difference and i don't think that there's uh anything wrong with that to be honest i don't mourn that difference i think that that diversity is a good thing but i'm always curious to see like how it's evolving in europe um you know because i've been away for like five years from there six years well it's hard to say now how things will evolve of course i thought by the way meeting stephanie richards was very interesting mm -hmm. i found hearing what she did with that improvisation very interesting i would love that to be introduced uh, more in, in europe really it's an interesting thing because i think uh, ed and i have talked about this actually that the most innovative trumpet players in america uh tend to gravitate away from uh, the work of w working with composers and getting concert dates and they all have been gravitating towards like playing in a bar and having a band and creating un unique music themselves with improvisation and like i said i don't pass any judgment on that i just think it's an interesting i i Wish there was more communication back and forth between the two creative communities in Europe and here because I think they could benefit from each other tremendously. Yeah, probably. Probably. Yeah, that's where somewhere something like Chosen Veil is so interesting to me. But uh, yeah, for for me, the Chosen Veil thing. I mean, I stopped going in 2016 was my last year. Um, but uh, you know, I've stayed very connected to that whole thing. But uh, I went many years, maybe five, and it's just the uh, you're slapped in the face from every direction with so much, like so many different things that are possible. Slapped with possibility and then with the highest possible quality in every direction. So it's like, for me, it gave me an extremely different view of what the trumpet was, but also what the trumpet community was. That, that it's like, oh, there's these people out there that are much more interesting than <laughs> the people I've been... Uh, told to follow along and it's great um, you know but you know i i agree with you let's hope it comes back <laughs> in a year or two yeah but it's a, it's a very big difference i guess in the um in the uh, some generations back in the ideal uh or trumpet examples that there were in in the states and in europe um if i may say so in the states has been one hand, but her set, and the other hand, the Canadian brass, I guess, um, with um, maybe not so much Fred, Fred Mills, but uh, Ronald Rum, as I mean, is an incredible trumpet player. Also, Fred Mills, of course, but more piccolo. But let's say Ronald Rum, his influence, and then uh, her set. That's like the names that. Maybe I'm completely wrong. Yeah? That's the the ones that I could call. And then, then if I think of Europe, that was uh, Maurice André. 
absolutely, absolutely makes sense. Of course, that's not has nothing to do with modern music, right? But we also there was also Dog Schitzer, which is very present, but of course because of the wall, less present. And he, a bunch of pieces have been written for him, a lot of pieces. Um, and of course, then Hokan came so big out together with Winton. Um, and so the, the the influence, I think, not so much my generation, but the generation before that, um, even um, was a very different of a very different kind. No, or am I yes, I think you're absolutely right at the face level. Like if you talk to most people, you're right. I mean, that's you you hit it exactly where it is. But I started to realize that in the background there were these less known people that facilitated what exploded 30 years ago which is like in the background you have Pierre Thibault, uh, Boo Nielsen, Tom Stevens communicating back and forth between these two continents in and yeah, on a pedagogic level right yes and innovating what uh, what Mark Gould calls the gospel of the trumpet you know like uh, how <laughs> how to unify the concepts in a way. Um, and of course, Tom was from the American level was coming from Majer, who was Majer and Vacchiano, but Majer was uh, Bud Herseth's big influence. So there's that vein coming straight and into Hokan and into all these people. And all of a sudden you explode with this new, you know, cadre of incredible trumpet players that I think was completely facilitated by this, like, pedagogical cabal in the background yeah you know absolutely that's a, that's a <laughs> completely different thing right yes you're yes. talking about the 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 core of it of a the thing but i'm talking about the superficial thing from yes. outside yes that's the thing it's you know you have you can re either read a serious newspaper or the newspaper that everybody reads <laughs> and yeah the but that's core... i think the analogy, I think, is because I think what you guys are doing at Chosenville is sort of continuing that communication in not so much in the shadows anymore, but it is the background hard work of the fruits that are happening all over now, you know? Yeah, of course. So you're a huge part of that now, you know? It's <laughs> great. I think you do think education is... is uh is the most sensible thing to do uh, in life <laughs> or being occupied with uh, pedagogical things. And as much as I love performing and, and, and uh, being inventive and creating programs and, and doing better, education is something so wide. I love it so much. And so there's, you have to be so open, so diverse. You, you have to find a way to every person or that person finds a way to you. You have to be the best possible student as a teacher all the time. Um, I'm learning. I'm learning so much. I mean, of course, from my son, I learn more than from anybody else. Um, but from my students, I learn so much. And I hope they learn something too. But... <laughs> Yeah, I th I think you know. Yeah, I I find I I love that 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 track. The education field. Well, we're all for the better that you find it interesting because it's good contributions. 
and it's something you can keep on go doing until you die, right? Uh, that's true. <laughs> that's very true. Hey, I want to be mindful of your time, and I know it's late there, but uh, you know, thank you so much for doing this, uh, and I'm very glad we met. And Me too. You know, hopefully, we'll talk again soon. You know, your own. Thank nice. you so much. Nice to meet you. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Have a good day. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. -bye.